Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where me and my co-host Daniel Larison are stirring the pot each week in favor of information and against secrecy, conspiracy, and obfuscation in U.S. foreign policy. It's a tough job, but someone has to do it, and guess what? We like it. Today, we will be joined by Natalie Armbruster of Defense Priorities to talk about our quasi-allies overseas and U.S. obligations in defending them. But first, new developments in the Ukraine front indicate that the U.S. may be inching even closer to a direct confrontation with Russia, just as members of Biden's own party urge him to put on the brakes. According to a CBS News report late last week, which caused quite a stir when it reported that the U.S. has deployed 4,700 soldiers from the 101st Airborne, Airborne's home base in Fort Campbell to reinforce NATO's eastern flank on the border with Ukraine. The 101st Airborne Division, which is trained for air assault missions and the ability to deploy on any battlefield in the world within hours, is nicknamed the Screaming Eagles. CBS CBS made the point of saying this was the first time that the 101st had been deployed to Europe since, quote, the last world war. In the exclusive video, the CBS reporter interviews two soldiers who are obviously juiced up for the mission, one of them declaring that this was, quote, not a training deployment, but a combat deployment, end quote. The report also mentioned that the U.S. now has some 100,000 troops trained stationed in the region, a mix of rotational and permanent deployments. That's about 40,000 more than there were in 2020. This comes at a time when the Bush administration, mean, the Biden administration has warned not only that Ukrainians may not be able to win the war outright, but that the Russians may resort to nuclear weapons. The White House has also resisted the idea that it should initiate talks with the Russians and insists it's up to Ukraine to decide when it's time to negotiate for peace. The deployment of our elite troops on the border could be a mere show of force or preparation for something to come. In the meantime, a letter signed by 30 House progressives and is getting fierce blowback this week from fellow Democrats for even mildly suggesting that the president pair his military aid to Ukraine with a diplomatic pathway towards a ceasefire. Dan, it is getting ugly out there for those of us seeking to spare Ukraine further destruction and to avoid a broader regional, if not global, war. It's like 2003 all over again. The narrative for war is building, and those who can see failure and bloodshed on the horizon are being smeared and cudgeled into silence. Where do you think this is all going? Well, unfortunately, I don't think it's going anywhere uh, good for for this country and for Europe. Um, The the atmosphere is, there are some similarities to the the pre-invasion atmosphere uh, from 20 years ago uh, in that there, there is immediate, almost overwhelming hostility to even the suggestion of a diplomatic solution, or that, that a diplomatic solution has anything to do with resolving the conflict. Uh, the, the the overkill in response to the Progressive Caucus's letter has been really, I guess, not surprising given what we've seen before, but but it is still remarkable how intense the hostility is to this letter, which if you read the text is not actually that radical in what it's proposing. It, it basically endorses the Biden administration policy and and essentially says, and we and we encourage you to to redouble your efforts to find some sort of diplomatic breakthrough, which is, I mean, it seems like a, a fairly sensible thing to say. There are people who are whining about the timing of it, saying, oh, it's coming just before the election, so it's bad for Democrats. Well, who, I mean, really, who cares about that? But why would it be bad for Democrats? It, why, why would it be bad for Democrats 
for members of their party to say, we hope to bring this devastating war to a swifter conclusion uh, because a protracted war will be devastating for Ukraine and for the world. How is that a harmful message for them? I, I don't know. Uh, a lot of what we've seen is just reflexive hostility, even to the, the merest hint uh, that diplomacy should have any role, uh, which is unfortunately quite typical of what we've seen over the last six, seven months. Uh, and, and, and we saw that before the invasion, too. There was, there was ex in extreme hostility to any possible negotiated uh, path to avoid a conflict back in the winter of 2021, early 2022. And, and we're seeing that same attitude prevailing again. Uh, and, and it's important to note that in the, the Progressive Caucus's letter, they make a point of including pretty much every caveat you could possibly want yeah. to make it clear that they're not talking about selling out Ukraine. They're not talking about negotiating behind their backs or over their heads or ignoring their concerns or interests. They, they emphasize many times that they want to find a peace settlement that is acceptable to the Ukrainian people, which you would think would be enough to satisfy people, but it's not. Uh, any any hint of negotiations brings out uh, this this incredibly venomous hostility. It's just it's very depressing. Uh, in terms of the troop deployments, I think what we're seeing is I mean it's a continuation of the same problem we've been seeing all year, which is that the U.S. is sending more troops to Europe when we should have fewer, and the Europeans should be the ones stepping up to take responsibility for their own affairs, especially now that we have seen how relatively weak in terms of conventional forces the Russians have proved to be. Uh, the, the Europeans have more than enough means to deal with this themselves in terms of protecting themselves, and the U.S. shouldn't be constantly sending in more and more, of it, including its best troops, uh, to shore up a frontier that's frankly not even in danger right now. There's, there's this idea that we're, you know, we're shoring up the eastern flank of NATO. This is how everyone talks about it now as though there's even the slightest chance that Russia is going to do anything against NATO when they've run into enormous trouble just trying uh, to fight Ukraine. So it's it seems unnecessary to me to be sending even more troops there now. Um, and of course, the, the coverage of this has been rather inspiriting to see too, because all of the headlines are emphasizing that they're they're ready for war, they're ready for war. Well, but there's, there's no war coming to NATO territory unless... NATO governments choose to intervene. The, the Russians aren't going to attack. So what are, what are we talking about? It's not, uh, it's not at all likely that those troops will even be needed in these NATO countries bordering Ukraine. So it, it, it seems like a, at best a, a waste of resources and at worst uh, a, a serious or, you know, or a, a step towards possible direct confrontation that the Biden administration, to its credit, has generally sought to avoid. Uh, and it's worth noting that the Progressive Caucus letter acknowledges that right. uh, the Biden administration has tried to avoid direct confrontation. They praise Biden for this. They praise uh, him up and down in this letter. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ex extremely pro-Biden letter. It's, <laughs> it's, it's probably, I mean, there are, I'm sure there are some people uh, listening to the show who think, you know, what, it's it's too pro Biden uh, because it is actually very 
very positive endorsement of everything that Biden has done thus far. And all that they're really saying is, and we hope that you will now pursue with greater energy uh, a diplomatic solution. And so the the furor over this is is really, on one hand, it's overblown, but it's also representative of the just the the toxic sort of insane nature of the debate over Ukraine and anything related to Russia today. Uh, and it's it's very discouraging for anybody that hopes to find uh, some way out of this that doesn't lead to greater escalation. Yeah, it is certainly toxic, and I think it's worth noting that you know, people like Max Blumenthal were right out of the gate yesterday when this letter, and I was saying yesterday, meaning Monday, when this letter was released saying that the the, the letter was weak and it didn't go far enough and that, that he didn't right. believe the rigor behind these uh, progressives stand, uh, their stand on this, on the subject. And so it was funny because there were a few people, Mike Tracy included on Twitter right away saying, uh, you know, I, I'm not buying this. And, and, and the letter is watered down and it doesn't go far enough. <laughs> and then it's been since overtaken by a gazillion tweets, uh, and outcries about how these progressives are somehow appeasing Putin. <laughs> And as you say, it right. says nothing of the kind in the letter. Right. It actually says, we want to pair our support for Ukraine's defense with a path of diplomacy, which is supposedly what Biden, like you said, is already doing. But it does, it does, and I'm, I'm sure this is coming to no surprise for our listeners, that it only reinforces this idea that there is no space right now for debate publicly on this war, because uh, if you're if you are questioning the cost and whether or not it is in U.S. interests to be um, involved in a proxy war in Ukraine on the right, you are being called a fascist. You are being called you're, you're being called a MAGA pro Putin ethno racist uh, fiend on the left. Now you're being called naive. You're being called an appeaser. You're being called weak. You're you're being called a traitor to your party because it's a week before the election, and so this just reinforces that you know it doesn't matter if you're coming from this left or right that there is little patience and little room uh, for for those of us who have been questioning the policy uh, without being called names or smeared and whatnot on the issue of the 101st Airborne. I I kind of misspoke or underplayed the enormity of the the, the comments that the uh, 101st, I, I called them soldiers, that talked to the CBS news reporter who was on the helicopter with uh, these guys headed to the border, you know, supposedly of Ukraine. But it was really a brigadier general who made the comments, and I, I, I brought up the story in, in the Washington Examiner, Brigadier General John Lubis, the division's deputy commander, stressed that it is, quote, not a training deployment, but rather a combat deployment from which his forces, quote, need to be ready to fight tonight, depending on how the situation escalates across the border. And then his compatriot, uh, Colonel Edwin Math Mathiades, Commander of the 2nd Brigade Combat Team told the news outlet these troops are the closest U.S. unit to the fighting in Ukraine, still raging more than seven months into Russia's full-scale 
invasion. It keeps us on our toes, he said. Um, this obviously caught the eye of many newspapers and commentators because it was all over the news over the weekend and into the into the week this week, forcing uh, uh, the Pentagon spokesman John Kirby to respond. And of course, he responds by saying, quote, nothing has changed about the commander in chief's decision that there will be no American troops fighting inside Ukraine. That has not changed. He he said when asked to comment on the reports. Um, you know, I, I see this as a little of the Biden administration continuing to want to have um, their cake and eat it too. They constantly want to show force. They want to, you know, gaslight uh, the, the Putin administration. They, they, they want to send a message that we're ready to fight that we're calling them on their their nuclear bluffs, but at the same time signal to the the, the United States pe- electorates and the, the citizenry that no, 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 we're not going to get directly involved. And I just don't know how long they can keep this gambit up because while I, I think it's laudatory to reassure the American public that we have our limits and will not be putting troops on the ground and recognizing that in poll after poll, that's what Americans want. They want us to stay out of it physically. But I don't know how much they can continue to escalate with these shows of force and to keep poking Moscow and not expect there to be some sort of response that will require our involvement in the end. And I feel like it's a real delicate dance that they're playing. And I don't really have faith in this particular administration nor any other in Washington for my entire lifetime that they could actually pull this out and not get us into a war. Our guest today is Natalie Armbruster. She's a research associate at Defense Priorities, and she's the co-author of a new paper on U.S. quasi-allies. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed the paper very much, uh, uh, co-written with Ben Friedman, who's also been a guest on the show. Um, and I, I like the the way you describe the, the relationship with these, these states, uh, the so-called quasi-allies, uh, that some people might otherwise refer to as clients, uh, uh, which states are you counting as quasi-allies in the paper, and what do you find are the major drawbacks of these relationships for the U.S.? Yeah, so we start out by defining very strictly what is an ally, so we can then say what is not an ally. And so we say that an ally is a state that the United States has a formal defense commitment to defend uh, by form of a treaty. And then we include a caveat, which is any state that the United States is fighting alongside in a war. Uh, we want you to think about something such as, you know, the Allied powers in World War One, or um, we want you to include partner forces that we've fought alongside in the Middle East, but only up until the mission, stated mission, original mission, is achieved. So when we're talking about things like the Kurdish forces, that would be up until 2019 when our mission to eliminate the ISIS territorial caliphate was achieved. Everything after that, it's not us adopting these quote unquote allies' objectives. So then moving forward, what we say are quasi allies 
is where we start getting into muddy waters. We're not saying that it is exclusively the countries that we're talking about in this paper. Um, these would include major non-NATO allies. Um, so countries that we have opened the door to have easier access to our weapons, our arms sales, things like that. Also, we talk about Taiwan, um, a state which was, was a US ally before the one China policy. And now we treat as a quote unquote partner we give them a lot of nominal support. We give them a lot of defense support. We are not saying whether or not we would defend them. We're using the strategic ambiguity. Then we're talking about the tragedy of the US relationship with Ukraine going as far back as 1994. And we're talking about countries in the Gulf, such as Saudi Arabia, who we would talk about as clients, who we've given so much aid to, so many weapons to, that the definition of the limits of what we would do for them is very unclear. Um, and so the danger of this for the United States is twofold. We have, well, for us, it's entanglement. We don't want to have public confusion about what our obligations are. We don't want to have congressmen saying that Saudi Arabia is an ally and therefore we have to sell them weapons when they are not. Uh, we don't want to have overly expansive basing in order to protect these quasi-allies when they're not our allies. We don't want to have endless wars on pursuit of these states' missions and objectives. We don't want to get tied into another conflict. And we don't want to have this false idea that we need to be defending them for credibility's sake. If we don't defend Ukraine, if we don't defend Taiwan, we're putting U.S. credibility at risk. When Daryl Press and most would say that that's not how credibility works. And so then on the other side of that, we're putting these quasi-allies at risk with moral hazard. We're saying for Taiwan, they think that the U.S. is going to come and defend them. So they're maybe not spending what they should be or preparing the way that they should be to defend against a possible Chinese invasion. And then on the other side, we have countries such as Saudi Arabia who might be provoking and having needlessly aggressive wars in Yemen. Uh, the Clancy Institute just wrote a great paper about that. And I thinking that the United States is going to back them up. Maybe that we're going to defend them after Iran, Iranian drones hit Saudi Armco, and we did not. And so we're disincentivizing them to come to the table and negotiate because they think that they have more backing than they do. So this, these murky waters, this confusion that we are kind of feeding into uh, for who knows what, virtue signaling, um, maybe there's a geopolitical basis that is uh, going over my head. But for some reason, we're putting ourselves at risk and them at risk um, with all of these misnomers. And definitely. And well, one of the things that I've found in observing these relationships over the years is that uh, in Washington, there's a tendency to conflate the interests of these quasi-allies with the interests of the United States so that the U.S. ends up subordinating its interests and priorities in a region to serve their needs rather than uh, putting ours first. Uh, uh, backing the Saudi coalition in Yemen uh, is one obvious example of that. Um, and so it often seems as if the clients or the quasi-allies are the ones setting the agenda and the U.S. is there to carry it out. Uh, how do you think that the U.S. can break that cycle and, and reassert its own interests uh, in policies and pursuits? Yeah, I think that the example of Saudi Arabia and their coalition in Yemen is a chief example. Uh, my personal belief is that these arms sales are perpetuating their campaign in Yemen. And as long as we continue to give them the weapons to do so, they will continue to do this campaign. And we saw an unprecedented 
unprecedented ceasefire in regards to Yemen that held for a very long time. And so we see that Saudi Arabia is maybe coming to the realization that this campaign in Yemen is not in their best interest. And it may be taking way too many resources and way too much money uh, that they're not willing to pay. And so, especially in that example, we see the power of these arms sales um, and the power of the weapons that we're giving. And so my personal belief is that we should not be arming the Saudi coalition. I won't speak for my uh, co-author, Ben Friedman, um, but especially in these sorts of uh, campaigns that is causing ourselves to take on some reputational harm, some, you know, moral washing of hands, one might say. Um, there's definitely some metaphorical blood on our hands on that side. And so I definitely agree with that. But then we also have to look at these endless wars that we've had in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. And David Sturman wrote a great paper about endless wars, where he said that the two main issues is we're adopting unachievable objectives, and then we're going out and we're shifting those objectives once we're already in there. And I think that's a huge reason why we're still there, because we call the Afghan um, forces our allies. We call the Kurds our allies. And it's so unsavory in 2019 when we were going to pull out of Syria and we were going to you know, let Turkey come down. There was huge backlash about us putting the Kurds in harm's way after everything that they did for us. And while, yes, I do not like uh, the idea of the Kurds losing the territory that they have, unfortunately, we can't adopt their democratic objectives. We can't adopt all the things that they want. And the Kurds would probably be a lot better off if we had been very honest and allowed them to have a de facto agreement with the Assad regime, traded some protection for some territory, things like that. And um, when we talk about staying in Syria for the Kurds, um, I mean, calling for an enduring defeat, saying we wait until an enduring defeat is waiting for a perpetual occupation, basically. And that's not realistic and that's not in the U.S. interest. So when we talk about this definition of allies ending when the U.S. mission is done, that's exactly what we're talking about, is saying in Afghanistan, the mission was achieved very early on and then we stayed for a decade longer. Iraq, same thing. Syria, same thing. And we stay far longer after we've already achieved what we said we were going to do because it feels so bad to leave. Um, but we only prolonged the inevitable. We didn't leave Afghanistan any better off than it would have been if we had left in 2010. And that's the sad truth of it. And it may be hard to say and hard to do, but President Biden was entirely right to pull out when he did. I wish he had done it sooner. And so it's exactly this problem that gets us into this never-ending cycle. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you know, in his uh, farewell address, George Washington, this is in 1796, um, actually warned against this. And he said that the nation which indulges toward another an habitual hatred or an habitual fondness is in some degree a slave. Why do you think, I mean, this is, I mean, obviously very prophetic because the U.S. foreign policy looked nothing like it did does today. But why do you think that his warning, that his approach to the world didn't prevail? And instead, what prevailed is this idea that we need to get into all of these entangling alliances, whether they are quasi or treaty bound, because they uphold some international order. And why didn't his warnings have more salience for U.S. foreign policy today? 
Well, I hate to be the typical realist, but I would say it's our never ending commitment to grasp onto primacy and feel like we just cannot let it go. And I think the huge misconception in Washington right now is that the only way to have privacy, to have this you know, liberal democratic order is to have allies absolutely everywhere. Yeah. That's why when we're talking about these quasi allies and this entanglement, we're talking about never ending force postures. The amount of countries that we have, that we are allied with is 51 countries by our definition. That's more than one fourth of the world's countries, but that is not even close to the amount of countries that we have troops in. And so I think when we've seen this era of primacy, Stephen Wertheim talks a lot about this and we are so desperate to cling on to that, that we feel like any ally is just an indisputable good. And all we need to do is keep adding on and adding on and on and adding on, and that will only make us safer. And that really is the wrong way to look at it, because if we had let, you know, Ukraine into NATO maybe 10 years ago, the involvement in uh, this war that we have now would be very different. You know, if they had an Article 5 commitment, if we're making treaty um, obligations to any country that we feel is remotely friendly to us, well, that's not going away. As soon as you have a treaty, that's not going to be reversed or you're not going to see that be something that we can step out of. And while I think my co-author Ben Friedman does posit that there are some allies that we would not defend when it come down to it, um, unfortunately, we are signing that piece of paper. And so when we're looking at things like Saudi Arabia, we believe that we are obligated to defend them. There was a senator in Idaho who said that, who said amongst um, the blocking of the blocking of arms sales, in the Senate a couple of years ago, you said, well, as with many allies, you know, they have some items that we do not agree with and they're not our allies. Yeah. But he has this idea that we are obligated no matter what. And so then if I'm in the public and I'm hearing that, I'm thinking, oh, well, I may not like what Saudi Arabia does, but they're my ally. I have to. <laughs> and so <laughs> unfortunately, we're just constantly expanding this web and never seeing an end and never questioning. We're seeing this now with Finland and Sweden, unfortunately, and my co-author has written a lot about this. Uh, there is not really a critical eye looking upon what are the consequences if we add Finland that has an immense border uh, <laughs> with Russia, things like that. We're not thinking about that. Um, and so I think when you have this false obligation in the public side, Congress, rhetoric, et cetera, you never stop and question the dissent is suddenly Putin apologists and right. I think, you know, things like that. And um, there's very little critical discourse. It does feel like it's, it's, diff it's difficult to disentangle, no pun intended, <laughs> the rhetoric from the actual obligation. I, I would, I would imagine that it was frustrating for you and your colleagues as to many of us, when Biden came into office in 2021 and his main line on foreign policy was we have to reassure our allies because they had been so um, disenchanted and dumped by dumped on by the previous Trump administration that their uh, you know, first primary goal was to reestablish those alliances to assure our partners and our friends that we are there for them and to rebuild. And I, it, there is never a, any conversation about or disentangling 
if you will, from those allies that we actually had treaty obligations with or these quasi uh, allies that we that had been established over time. It was just this this blobby um, grouping that we needed to show that we were back on the scene and we were ready to you know, take up those, those partnerships and move ahead with them. So I guess it, it must have been frustrating because the conversation only, it, it, you know, it, it never goes any further than that. And I know that you and Ben and, and many others that we've had on the show are frustrated today because it seems of what's happened in Ukraine with Russia invading that that conversation has shifted even further away is that we're not, you know, there are folks that are trying to, to rethink and, 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 and revisit our actual alliances with South Korea, for example, and whether or not those, uh, the, those missions are still, you know, viable today or um, whether they, they, you know, should be um, tweaked a bit. And so, how, how, I guess maybe my question is, how has the war in Ukraine made your job even more difficult when you're trying to talk about alliances and um, shaping a conversation around them? Yeah. Well, first, I would say it is the realist position that we should be pulling out of uh, or disengaging from NATO, I'm not going to say pulling out. I will say yeah. disengaging, allowing Europeans to take charge of their own defense. And I think there was a lot of hope that with the war in Ukraine, that they would start stepping up, we would start to see more from them and start to see them taking control and ownership of their own, of the defense of their continent. And instead, what we've really seen is with Biden reassuring them that we'll always be there, we're in fact involving ourselves even more, becoming even more of the guarantor of their right. security instead of the other way around. And so I would say that has been a huge frustration. Moving forward with things like public confusion, I think that has been something that the war in Ukraine has really drummed up. Um, Everyone was very confused at the beginning of the war, what Article 5 was, what our obligation was to Ukraine. And when we wrote a lot about this in our paper, when we're talking about moral hazard, what we're talking about is that, is all of these very, very vague statements. We're talking about 1994 and the Budapest Memorandum. We're talking about 2008 with the Bucharest Summit. And if I'm just an everyday person reading those things, I would be confused about what our obligation was to them. And upon reading it, the reality is that all we really obligated ourselves to was to complain to the UN Security Council and not much more. And so we talk about ironclad, we talk about unwavering commitments. And so all the way up until the invasion, if I were just an everyday person, I would have no idea what any of this means. And I would forgive anyone for thinking that we were obligated to do more than we did or wanting to do more. I think we talk a lot about uh, in the paper, the way the public opinion can throw up support and really start drumming the drums of war. And so with Ukraine and with kind of public sentiment around it, we saw this huge wave of people wanting to do more wanting to be involved, and even though it's not in the U.S. interest. And so that was also extremely frustrating, having to fight back against that and say, do you really want Americans to fight and die for Ukraine? I understand. I don't want Ukraine to be in the position that it's in, but I also don't want to send Americans to defend that. And then I would say, thirdly, it does come down to 
the frustration of having to look back and say, actually, we were, there's a part that we played in that. And there is a lot of misinformation that we did um, that would have given Ukraine a lot of false assurances. And if I were Ukraine, I would be thinking that we were going to get more support than we did, or there would be a lot of false hope. I think something that Ben really articulated well in this paper was you can't blame them for having false hope. You can't blame them for reading into the statements that we are making right. and hoping that we will step in for them. And so, you know, I think it's really tragic. I mean, what is a tragedy if not actors acting on misinformation or incomplete information and leaving themselves worse off than they would have been if they just acted in their own interests? And so especially in 2021, we're seeing kind of this buildup and we're having U.S. rhetoric, we're having... Um, these assurances, quote unquote, and I don't blame Ukraine for thinking that they would get more aid and thinking that they would get more help than they did and not taking the precautionary measures and not being willing to negotiate, not being willing to implement the Minsk II Accords, you know? So there was a long history that we kind of set up what happened. And so many people are saying that if we say that it's our fault, then we're, you know, appeasing Putin, all of these things. And that's just not true. Um, but the unfortunate fact is that, you know, we do have to look at ourselves in the mirror and think about, um, the part that we played. I'm not saying that we were why Russia invaded, but we certainly did play a role. And that is very frustrating to try to explain that. And, uh, we met with a very, uh, stonewall. <laughs> right, right. Because the, the, um, the argument's so emotional. So you end up being logical and reasonable and realistic, but the other side is very emotional. And so you come off looking like you're callous, you know, and that's, that's difficult. John Mearsheimer's run through, run into that time and time again, where he makes all the arguments and they're strong, uh, but all he needs is an opponent to talk about, well, you don't care about Ukrainians. You don't care about babies dying and women being raped in the streets and then boom, you know? Um, so it's, it is a difficult position to play, but you guys are doing great work in, in trying to make those arguments or, or effectively making them, rather. I think it's kind of ironic that that's the place that we come from, because I would say I'm probably the softest person when it comes to all <laughs> of this stuff. I am the most moral, sentimental, whatever. And how I got into realism was watching the Syrian civil war, being like, how can this happen? How can this happen? Right. How, 10 years later. All I'm thinking about are all of the people in the middle exactly. who are suffering because we are continuing to stay there. When we talk about a perpetual occupation, we're also talking about perpetuating their economic crisis. We're Absolutely. talking about prolonging all of these terrible uh, situations that they're in. They're not able to rebuild. They're not able to you know, move forward and start re um, reconstructing their economy. And so you know, for me, this is a hugely emotional argument. And I'm coming at it from a very emotional place of I don't want to have that blood on my hands yeah. and leaving people worse off than they are. So I think it's very ironic that we always get lambasted as so callous and so hard. But in reality, a lot of the people here who are in this realism and restraint camp, we're the softies that are like, no, I just don't want people to die. I don't want people to go to war. I want this war to end uh, as soon as possible. Uh, so, it is, yeah, it's quite funny. We got to keep we got to keep hammering away at that. We can't see the the moral argument. I agree yeah. with you. Right, and if I can just get one more question before we run out of time. Um, so having 
uh, laid out uh, the problems with our quasi-allies and the, the pitfalls of these relationships, um, how many would you say genuinely advance U.S. interests and how many are just liabilities and, and, and drains on the U.S.? Are there quasi-ally relationships that you uh, personally or you and your colleagues together would recommend curtailing or ending? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. I would say lie, laying out the quasi-allies that are in the paper, we are absolutely advocating for clarity by, by subtraction. Uh, very, very cut and dry. We don't think that we should be providing false assurances to any of these countries. Um, now, maybe that is just in a rhetorical way. Am I saying that major non-NATO allies and the ways in which we are able to give them increased arms, increased weapons, is that against U.S. interests? Well, that's on a case-by-case -case basis. I'm saying maybe don't call them major non-NATO allies when, in fact, a lot of the countries that are getting these arms are not allies. Um, moving forward with Ukraine, absolutely. That is something that we should have been much more clear about, if not uh, openly, then at least behind closed doors. Especially with Taiwan, we're not exactly arguing against strategic ambiguity. We understand the value of that and uh, the utility that that plays for U.S. foreign policy. However, when we talk about things like Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, or we talk about these very, very virtue signally posturing events that we're taking on, absolutely we're arguing against things like that. I don't know what the value for Taiwan was in Pelosi visiting them, but the trade-off was opening the door and inviting China to have increased uh, aggression drills over Taiwan. I mean, every time that we do these very false and these very empty shows of support, it's only further entering towards this aggressive posture that we don't want. You know, and so when we're talking about strategic ambiguity, that does not have to entail all of the things that have encompassed it. And, you know, that's a trade-off that I would not be willing to make. If I were Taiwanese, my, actually my colleague, Sasha Glazer, yesterday came out with a great paper about lessons that Taiwan should take from Ukraine. And one of those was the U.S. is not going to defend you. Stop taking these very, very empty shows yeah. of support and, and asking for these things when it's going to leave you further and further uh, estranged from the strategic ambiguity. And you don't want to you don't want to light the match. Um, that inflames that fire. And so, especially with the quasi-allies that it's going against their own interest, absolutely, clarity by subtraction. Uh, the only quasi-ally that we included that we understand will never be subtracted is likely Israel. Every president since Bill Clinton has called them an ally and our commitment to them appears to be ironclad. We talk about the issues that that raises for negotiations in the Middle East. Uh, but we're very realistic about the fact that that's not going anywhere. And, yeah, and, I, and I think that's uh, an accurate assessment. Uh, thanks very much, Natalie Armbruster, Defense Priorities. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack. 
at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.